welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Evelyn Dueck, lecturer in law and doctrinal candidate at Harvard Law School. We will discuss her article, Governing Online Speech, From Posts as Trumps to Proportionality and Probability, which will be published in the Columbia Law Review. So welcome to the show, Evelyn. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, this is a great pleasure for me. I thought this paper was fantastic, and um, I really appreciated the perspective you brought to this really timely and, frankly, quite difficult and contested question. Uh, So thanks a ton. Uh, Awesome paper. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to hear that. It is definitely a timely, difficult, and contested issue, that's for sure. <laughs> so I wanted to start with this, with the same kind of framing, in a sense, that you do in the paper. So you observe that most online uh, content, like most social media platforms, basically, currently conceptualize content moderation primarily in terms of categorical rules. And I wonder if you could explain what you mean by that. Maybe like give a couple examples of why you think that's the best way to describe how historically uh, we've thought about content moderation. Yeah. So uh, I want to start by saying, you know, this idea that sort of early content moderation was really uh inflected with a First Amendment approach uh, is not a new approach, uh, new observation. Uh, lots of scholars have been making that observation for, for a long time, and I'm really only building on their work. But I think something that's gone underappreciated uh, in that recognition of the First Amendment's influence on content moderation is the methodological aspect beyond the merely substantive aspect of First Amendment doctrine. And so, you know, as, a, as a, you can hear, I'm not American. Uh, I'm a comparative scholar. And something that's really striking about First Amendment doctrine is this categorical approach, which is that, you know, it it proceeds in two steps. The first question is, what kind of speech is this? And sort of putting it into categories. uh, And then that based on that categorization, there's some fairly uh, outcome determinative rules that apply to what you should do with that speech. Um, And that's not the approach, that's not the globally dominant approach uh, to uh, speech adjudication, which is this proportionality approach, which we might, we can get to. Um, But the the categorical approach, really the hard work is done at the definition of the category. Uh, And that's just really been pervasive in content moderation because it gives platforms the ability to say, we're not judging the value of this speech, we're just categorizing it, we're just uh, defining it and identifying it. Um, the pro- perhaps the most striking example of this uh, in content moderation has been pretty much a uniform uh, stance that they will not take down content on the basis of its falsity, or at least that was the approach of uh, for a very long time, up until really the last few months, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. Um, you know, there was no question of like, wh- why is this? What about this is false, or what is the potential harm of this falsity? It's just that if it, if the problem is that it's false speech, that's not that's in a category that doesn't mean we touch it. Um, and so, you know, there there are other uh, examples of this. This doesn't always mean um, that 
the speech, it, it's a completely absolutist approach to speech, obviously. Content moderation uh, has been sort of fueled by this contradiction from the start of, you know, wanting to leave a lot of stuff up, but also needing to take stuff down. And we see uh, on, the, on the flip side, for example, Facebook's categorical approach to adult nudity, which is just for a long time was if there's adult nudity, it comes down and it doesn't, they don't really want to be engaging in that question of does this nudity have some sort of other independent value that must might justify leaving it up. Well, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why this kind of historical and um, kind of default categorical approach to thinking about content moderation has been, has produced kind of undesirable results, both in a kind of a broader social sense, but also with respect to the social media platforms themselves. Yeah. So I think um, this has really been a very striking thing to see uh, in just the last few years alone, how quickly the discourse around this has changed, really fueled by what has been come to known, uh, been come to known as the tech lash. Uh, just this idea that you know social media platforms can't ignore the very obvious societal costs of a more hands-off approach, what I called the the posters Trump's era, you know, the the let the content flow kind of era. Um, And that was sort of mostly sparked by, I think, a a lot of attention was drawn to this around disinformation in the 2016 election, but then we had the sort of Cambridge Analytica scandal, and this sort of just brought scrutiny um, to these platforms and sort of set off a broader reckoning, which has then uh, come to encompass a lot of stuff around the, you know, the toxicity and hate speech that has always been there, but didn't always uh, get as much attention as it should. Um, And so I think that that has really been a a, a core uh, part of, of what's going on here is that society is really asking these platforms to take responsibility. And I think the one of the key parts of that has been that, you know, the categorical approach, part of it, the reason why it's partly attractive, as I was saying, is that, is, is that the platforms pretend that they're not making value judgments about the value of speech. Um, but that's just so obviously not the case. They clearly are making value judgments about what they choose to leave up and what they choose to take down importantly, but also more systemically about what they choose to amplify and what they choose to not give as much prominence and and the affordances that they provide people. There is no such thing as a neutral platform. So this idea of neutrality and just we're just, you know, uh, taxonomists categorizing things was clearly a myth. And as society became more aware of that um, and of the inherent value judgments that are in every decision uh, that these platforms make from design decisions to the individual content moderation decisions, uh, there was more uh, demand for accountability for the consequences of those decisions. Well, on some level, it seems like this categorical way of thinking about moderation is like facially easy, but actually in practice quite difficult to do on scale and produces this huge amount of both under and over inclusive decision making when it comes to what to do with content. And I noted one thing I thought was really interesting is you kind of point out in your paper the extent to which the response from the public and from commentators to content moderation has been to point to particular examples of bad decisions. Do you think that's tied 
to this categorical approach in any way? And if so, you know, is is that a problem both from the perspective of the platforms, but also from a kind of broader policymaking regulatory perspective? So it's a great question. I think there's two uh, parts to the answer. So the first part is um, the incoherence of the categorical approach and the way that it breaks down. Uh, part of that is is a, a result of trying to apply it at scale. But I think part of it is just that inherently uh, a categorical approach and, and refusing to look at the value judgments that are inherent in the categories that you're drawing uh, eventually does become incoherent. And I think that's something that First Amendment doctrine uh, teaches quite well, um, says the Australian indubitably getting herself in trouble with a bunch of American First Amendment scholars. I mean, I don't know how many people really insist that the First Amendment doctrine is fully coherent at this stage. But I, I do think that there is just this, this uh, sort of inevitable sort of breakdown as you keep putting pressure on categories on edge cases. If you don't sort of, if you insist on trying to be value neutral about it, uh, it's going to come under pressure. But I do think the scale issue is is a massive problem um, because it just means that there is no way to get content moderation right 100% of the time at the scale that these platforms operate. It's just impossible. Um, and so we do end up in, in this situation where it's always possible for a platform will announce a rule and a reporter will spend 30 minutes clicking around on their platform and they will find evidence of how that rule has been misapplied. It's just kind of never going to be sort of, that's partly going to be inherent, although we can talk about, you know, the need to reduce uh, the rate of error. Um, But I think, you know, errors are always inevitable. And so I, I have this thing that we need to avoid content moderation error nut picking, right? Like we have this thing where a, a platform will announce a rule and then people will go and try and find the most uh, crazy um, incoherent application of that rule that they can and it gets a lot of attention. And sometimes that's really, really important, but sometimes that uh, diverts attention from the more systemic issues that we should be asking and systemic questions. Because if error is in, in if error is inevitable, uh, the the better questions that we should be asking are like, what kinds of errors do we want to prefer uh, and and err on the side of making rather than how can we avoid error all the time? Because that's just never going to happen. Um, and I, I do want to say, though, that, uh, you know, lest it sound like I'm being too sympathetic to the platforms here, part of the reason why we do that, why we, you know, error nut pick uh, is because we don't have systemic transparency. And so that's what we're left. That's what we're reduced to. They are intentionally opaque so that we can't ask the systemic questions and sort of talk about system design. Uh, And so we're left with just trying to find obvious cases where they're not living up to their promises. Well, so in the paper, you suggest an alternative approach to conceptualizing and implementing content moderation, uh, kind of based in two distinct but related concepts of proportionality and probability. Uh, could, could you talk a little bit about how you use those concepts in the approach that you're suggesting, sort of how they're different and also how they are related to each other in kind of making the system work more consistently with our policy goals. Yeah. So 
the, the point that I'm making in the paper, the, the, the argument that I'm making is that we're now in an era of systemic balancing in content moderation. And I don't think that I'm making any particularly original or unique insight in saying that. I think that that's just sort of kind of true and, and, and obvious from the way that content moderation is, is happening. But I'm trying to sort of give that more of a conceptual framework uh, than I think has been given in the past. And that's through these two tools, uh, these sort of ideas, these tenets of proportionality and probability. And so proportionality is very well known. It is the um, you know globally dominant form of judicial review and, and rights adjudication throughout the world, although there is one notable holdout, which is the United States. Um, and that sort of just asks, you know, we don't stop at the categorical approach. Instead, we acknowledge that there are multiple competing rights and interests in any question. Uh, and that the task of the decision maker is to identify those rights and interests and balance them. Um, and I know that a lot of uh, listeners are going to get very nervous when we when we say balance rights and interests. Um, and I, I understand that, you know, th- that's where the posters Trump's uh, moniker in my uh title comes from is because, of course, Ronald Walken argued that, you know, rights are trumps and to subject them to balancing is to deny them altogether. Um, But to uh, most other constitutional systems, um, proportionality and balancing isn't so scary. It's something that they're well acquainted with. And indeed, many people would argue and suggest that it is sort of inherent in um, the the American approach to rights adjudication as well. Um, So it's sort of it's first identifying that there's lots of rights and interests in any question and, and trying to find the most proportionate approach to dealing with um, dealing with restrictions on speech. And I also suggest that inherent in that question is a lot more remedial flexibility because a categorical approach suggests once you've categorized the speech, um, you apply this outcome determinative rule and you're stuck in this sort of take down, leave up paradigm of content moderation. And I think that that's a false binary. I think there's so many more tools in between those two approaches that we should be using and, and much more remedial flexibility. Uh, and, and I think we're getting there. Um, Twitter just made a, a big announcement this morning uh, about sort of a whole bunch of uh, rules and changes that it's making around election misinformation that are exactly living in this gray area that's a sort of more proportionate uh, response to potentially harmful speech. So things like labeling false information, uh, introducing friction, de-amplifying, all of these things that aren't necessarily taking down or censoring speech, uh, but are still de- so acknowledging the other interests at play uh, while also respecting the speech right that does, or the speech interest that exists. Um, and then, so the second tenet is this probability approach that I uh, was talking about. And that goes back to this idea that error is inherent. Um, and it's, so how how have platforms dealt with this problem of scale? Um, you know, the internet has unleashed a torrent, a flood of speech. And it, for the first time in history, all of it is somehow sort of tractable and potentially governable uh, in a way that offline speech just isn't. Like, it's not that um, offline speech, uh, there's no errors in, involved in governing offline speech. It's just that we don't see a lot of it. A lot of it doesn't interact with the governance system, whereas online, all of it is potentially governable. And so we have seen, and it's just been so rapid, uh, the rise of artificial intelligence tools and filters uh, to deal with this complete flood of online speech. Um, And really, that has only sort of 
taken off at such a scale in areas outside of uh, copyright in the last couple of years. You know, we had sort of uh, Mark Zuckerberg promising that the AI, AI tools would solve everything before Congress in 2018. Uh, and at that stage, it, the tools were proactively den- identifying about 50% of the hate speech that it was taking down off its platform. And now we're up in the 95 plus uh, area, supposedly. I mean, these are all unverified figures, but that's what they say. Um, even for hate speech, which is such a contextually dependent judgment. And so the only thing, like I said, we have no verification of these figures. The only thing that we know is that these tools are getting it wrong. Uh, they are both over-enforcing and under-enforcing the rules sometimes. And we know that because of this, you know, content moderation error identification that we can do for the for any rule. Uh, but what we don't know is how often it's getting it wrong in a, syst- in a systemic way, how often it's over-enforcing or under-enforcing. And m- crucially, who bears the costs of a particular kind of error. So, for example, um, with hate speech, if you are under enforcing that rule, uh, if you're the, then if you are erring on the side of under enforcing, then that could have much higher costs uh, for marginal communities than it would maybe for other communities. Uh, we just don't know the answer to that question, and so so the the question that I'm interested in asking is like, what are the probabilities of enforcing these rules at a systemic level um, rather than sort of just looking at an individual rule and individual cases? Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit more about how focusing on probabilities in relation to enforcement might change the tenor of the conversation from what you point out is really our current approach of just kind of holding up examples of decisions that were a mistake. Yeah, so I think maybe the easiest way to talk about this is in the context of the pandemic, um, which I use as an example in my paper, because I think it's a particularly stark example of the way this conversation played out. Um, but it was really only sort of a heightened, ultra obvious example of what is happening every day in the context of every content moderation decision. So when the pandemic started, uh, the the platforms sort of declared a state of emergency and they rolled out a whole bunch of new rules that said that they're going to take an unusually aggressive approach to uh, misinformation and disinformation on their platforms. Um, they were finally going to be arbiters of truth, even though they have insisted for a very long time that they are not in any way, shape or form. So good. Um, that's, that's step one. One, that was part that's the part of the proportionality approach the, the the question there is yes there is still speech interests in people saying what they want to say but in the context of a global public health emergency that interest is shockingly outweighed by the potential for imminent physical harm uh, if people have false information uh, about this emergency but then the platforms like everyone else had to send all of their content moderators content moderation uh, enforcers home. Uh, And they said, we're going to have to rely on our artificial intelligence tools more than normal. And we're not going to have as many human reviewers engaged in this process. And then this this thing happened, which gave a lot of us that watch this space whiplash, because normally they talk about their AI tools as going to be the panacea, the thing that's going to fix everything. And then suddenly, instead, in these announcements, they say, oh, yeah, and by the way, our AI tools are pretty blunt, and they lack a lot of context. And so we're going to make more mistakes than normal. And so all of us are going, yeah, well, duh, we knew that. Thank you for finally admitting it. Um, But the interesting thing is this idea that everyone sort of was like, 
well, yeah, that makes sense. Um, in the context of a public health emergency, the idea that the platform should over-enforce their misinformation rules and rely on AI tools to take stuff down, even if that means that more good speech, more perfectly fine normal speech will get taken down um, in the application of that, that rule. Um, that was an error choice and an error cost that we as a society basically said, great, that's really good. Over-enforce your rules because the potential costs of under-enforcing your rules in the, in the context of a public health emergency is, is too high. Um, because there was another p- possible error choice that the platforms could have made. They could have said, well, we don't have human reviewers and we know our, a- our AI tools make mistakes, so we're not going to use our AI tools. We want to err on the side of speech. Let the posters trumps, let the speech flow. And that was obviously not a tenable choice in the context of the pandemic. And so it's an error choice, um, and it, they erred on the side of over-enforcement. Um, that kind of decision happens in the context of every rule that they make, that platforms make and enforce. Uh, We just don't have any visibility into it. They finally said it in the context of the pandemic, um, but that kind of choice and conversation and calculus is happening all the time. I wonder who the ultimate audience of your paper and your argument is, as you see it. I mean, is this something that the government can and should mandate or even implement itself? Or is this something that ultimately would have to go to the platforms themselves in order to make it happen? And in either case, sort of what do you see as kind of key features that would be necessary in order to make this work? So this is a great question. It's something that I um, sort of think about and get challenged on a lot in my work is that it's a kind of quasi-legal space in a way. Um, I'm talking about all of these laws and rules that platforms are making, and they're not laws and rules at all. They're blog posts um, that could change at any moment. Um, And so why am I so focused on how platforms are sort of... promulgating their governance systems. Um, and I think, you know, this is this, um, you know, Jack Balkan's idea that free speech is a triangle now. We have the, the the individuals, the state, and these platforms who are, as Kate Clonic coined them, you know, the new governors of online speech. So obviously platforms are one big audience for what I'm saying. I'm saying you are engaging in this kind of analysis, this systemic balancing analysis. You are applying proportionality and probability. I know it. I can see it. So come out and come out and say it and do it openly and transparently because doing it transparently is the only way that it can be legitimated. We are having a crisis of legitimacy at the moment. That's what this tech lash is about the way that we're being governed by these platforms that sort of completely opaquely and arbitrarily apply their norms. um, And we don't know what their error rates are. And so I want more visibility into that. I'm saying to them, um, you know, if you want to try and build up the trust that you clearly do want and have lost so thoroughly, uh, this is one way in which you can do it. But then there is a part of this paper that is very much talking to regulators as well, because the, I think acknowledging this role of proportionality and and probability in content moderation uh, does 
sort of shed some light on this question that regulators everywhere around the world are struggling with at the moment. I mean, there are something like, I think, 17 Section 230 bills uh, floating around Congress at the moment. Other countries around the world have passed or are writing uh, at the moment laws. So I think the the regulatory space in this area is just going to be fundamentally transformed in the next few years. And so the question that I'm sort of, the, 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 the insight that I'm trying to provide there is how regulators should be focusing on how to legitimate this systemic balancing approach. Um, Recognising that error is inevitable is is a really important part of the regulatory approach here um, because punishing platforms on the basis of of individual errors will uh, will not be effective and it will ultimately uh, result in more over-enforcement and sort of collateral censorship uh, as platforms try and avoid uh, punitive measures. And so regulators as well need to start thinking about how do we govern this as a system and what do we want from platforms to legitimise their systemic approach? And, and, And sort of my paper doesn't go into this into a, in a lot of detail but we can think about it more like um, financial regulation where banks for example are sort of required to have appropriate systems in place uh, and to comply with sort of systemic requirements and instead of being punished for individual errors uh, individual instances of of money laundering or something like that that the question is did they have a proper system in place and are they being adequately transparent and having those systems audited uh, by independent auditors so that we know that what they're saying is true yeah, I mean, one thing I was thinking about reading your paper is that there's a way in which the Section 230 debate, both pro and con, has really, in many respects, dominated the conversation around content moderation. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like a version of the categorical approach. And I feel like not enough people seem to be talking about this in a kind of more holistic policy-based sense in the way that you are in the paper. Look, the Section 230 debate is um, <laughs> is not holistic, or, or I, I would say in in many cases, and you know, it's it's really sort of um, everyone wants something different, and it's just entirely unclear uh, what's going to come out. I, I think I would certainly agree that we have a lot of. Uh, bills and ideas that are focused on this sort of categorical approach of this kind of content good, this kind of content bad, and you will be punished if you uh, allow any instance of this content or take down any instance of this content and and that kind of thing. Um, I I do think there is some, like there's a a Schatzthun, the the PACT Act, which is, I think, more targeted at the kind of transparency and systemic regulation measures that I'm interested in. It still has problems, but I'm bullish on that kind of reform uh, that focuses on that more systemic approach, but I definitely agree with you that that is very much uh, the the outlier and sort of the the uh, exception to the rule, which is that very much um, you know there's this sort of categorical approach. Literally in 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 section two thirty, there's sort of reforms that are targeted. At, here are listing the categories of speech that you should take down, and here are the ones that you should leave up. Um, and and I don't think that that's the most productive way to be having this conversation. Well, so Evelyn, in in closing, uh, in a lot of ways, what you're proposing in this paper and the sort of reconceptualization you're proposing seems uh, 
really dramatic and um and uh and like like a, like a big shift but on another level i felt like i couldn't help but feel like reading the paper that we do a lot of this kind of speech regulation socially all the time in more limited contexts i mean people use proportionality in their everyday lives when they think about like what's appropriate to say in any particular context and what isn't and it seems like the big difference is really only that it's happening on a much you're suggesting it on a, what something we're already familiar with on a just vastly 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 broader scale is that right or am i am i missing something no, I mean, I think you're totally right. I, I, it's funny to hear you say that you think that this is proposing some sort of very sort of radical shift in the way that we think about it. Because I think my great fear uh, when I put this paper out into the world is that people are going to read it and be like, uh, yeah, um, that's entirely obvious and not uh, not at all dramatic or insightful. Um, that's kind of what we're doing already in, in so many ways and, and, and form. Um, and I think that, so, I mean, I think that it's part of what I'm trying to do is just provide uh, sort of impose order on chaos. I, I sort of see this debate and we are just sort of, uh, sort of being flung around, pinballing off walls, and it's sort of I'm trying to provide a conceptual framework for what I see is already occurring. Um, but I also agree with you that a lot of what I'm talking about is already inherent in the way that we think about speech governance. So I think that as much as First Amendment doctrine, for example, insists on saying it as categorical, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, proportionality analysis inherent in that. And, you know, like Professor Vicki Jackson, Professor Dick Fallon have, have talked about this, you know, it, the, you can't, there is no escaping the task of balancing. It is somewhat inherent uh, in, in rights adjudication. Um, and then on the error choice, absolutely legal systems make that choice all the time. Um, and the, 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 you know, no legal system promises a perfect perfect adjudication in every case. That's just not what happens. Uh, I think the the difference that I'm saying is I think we need to be much more candid and unembarrassed about that. Uh, I think we need to talk about it and admit that we're going to get speech decisions wrong. I think one of the reasons why content moderation uh, in part has been slow to come to that conversation uh, is that speech rights are sort of seen as so special and so sacred. And to the extent that uh, speech free speech doctrine has engaged in error cost analysis, it's always been all one way, which is err on the side of um, false negatives. Like because of the chilling effect and because of the importance of speech, uh, we should err on the side of free speech, uh, speech as trumps and not uh, over-enforce any rules. And I'm saying, well, um, I think in this the, the the radical transformation that technology has given to our information ecosystem, um, that approach just isn't tenable anymore. And we need to have a much more sort of mature and sophisticated approach and conversation around the error costs and the error choices that we're making. Well, Evelyn, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about this excellent and thought-provoking paper. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was a real joy. You just
should bow your head in shame Everybody says the same You're acting like a little kid or two Putting all the blame on me Won't get you much sympathy Those silly things you say are all untrue So bite your tongue and say you're sorry, baby Sorry for each It's your head and not your heart that keeps saying we must part. So bite your tongue and say you're sorry, dear. give to you than my heart so fond and true and shall I tell you what you gave to me heartaches morning noon and night and then claiming you were right but you were just as wrong as you could be so bite your tongue and say you're sorry baby sorry for each little burning tear It's your head and not your heart that keeps saying we must part. So bite your tongue and say you're sorry, dear. It's your head and not your heart that keeps saying we must part. So bite your tongue and say you're sorry, dear.